Love Talk Radio. February 14th, 2018 edition of Don't Let It Go Unheard. And here we typically discuss news, politics, and culture from an individualist perspective. This is going to be the third. (laughs) I've got a series of three discussions now on Jordan Peterson's book, 12 Rules for Life. We're going to finish it up today. I have allowed for up to two hours here on Blog Talk Radio. I don't know if we're going to go for the full two hours my goal for today uh, is to talk to you guys for about an hour about this and then open it up for comments, questions, calls, and things like that. Because one of the things that I learned in finishing this book, and I mean, it just makes sense, is you're not really having a conversation if you can't judge what the reaction of the audience is. Now, one thing I'll tell you, and I've told you this before, I, I refer to a number of my shows as self-indulgent. And what Peterson talks about, I believe it's in Rule 9 when he talks about, you know, the, assume that the person whom you're speaking with um, knows more than you do or knows something that you need to know is another way that he's formulated it. And in that chapter, he talks about the fact that the way that we think is by speaking a lot of the time. Now, it might not be always actually speaking out loud to somebody. He talks about getting very good at speaking to yourself in your own head, have the different avatars that have a conversation in your head. And really when I talk about doing a self-indulgent show, I think what I'm doing a lot of times is thinking aloud. So I thank you guys for the opportunity to do this show because I do, I think. So yes, I'm going to be, of course, doing some thinking, I'll actually be, you know, getting kind of the usual thing of a conversation out of this while I'm presenting, but it's not nearly as good as if I interact with you guys. So as we go on, of course, put comments and questions in the chat room. I have somebody who emailed me via my blog at don'tletitgo.com, a comment, and I'm going to go ahead and look at that. But in that second hour, particularly, if you have any comments or questions, if you want to tell me something that you got out of Peterson's book, the number where you can do so is 760-888-5817. And that would be great. Um, really, my goal here, I've, you know, I've got a, a few things. First of all, there are people who would just like to watch or listen to any presentation on Peterson because they really love Peterson. They get a lot out of him. And other discussions about his book is something that's just interesting to them. But there are two different types of people that I'm really kind of targeting this toward. One is 
within my own community, people who are fans of Ayn Rand's philosophy, maybe people who even call themselves objectivists, there's a heavy skepticism about the kind of value that you could get out of a book like this that because Peterson doesn't share our philosophy, that there are some, you know, very different foundations that he has. And I think that's just wrong myself. I think that there's a ton that you can get out of this book. I highly recommend the book. The book, the book is very moving. It's full of compelling stories. It's got good advice that you can put on your own philosophical foundation. So one of the things that I want to do is just share with you what I've gotten from the book in various places and maybe that will be enough so that you think, because, I mean, this is the thing. Everybody who reads this book is going to get something different out of it. Um, you know, and I'll, give, I'll give you examples of things that I got out of it myself, but your own life experience and the type of advice that you might be receptive to given to you in this way at this particular time in your life is going to be very different than mine. So, yeah, I share with you, and, again, it's helping me think through things, but only you can then decide, you know, is this going to be worthwhile for you? He is such a compelling storyteller. He never hides where he's coming from. So it's not like you're going to look at this and you're going to say, oh, wow, you know, he's so compelling. And he, um, you know, the, the advice I find, it really resonates with me and then I'm going to follow it. And what if I unknowingly absorb some of his bad philosophical context and I move away from what I really think. You're never going to do that because he tells you exactly where he's coming from, sometimes in the most jarring way. So you can just sit back and appreciate and keep in mind his foundation and keep in mind how you're going to take the evidence and the advice and the arguments and the stories that he tells and put them into your own context. Um, you can get a lot of value out of this book. It's, it's excellent. It's very moving. You understand a lot more about him. He reveals, of course, more about himself and the experiences that he's been through and his self-exploration as he goes through the book. So there's just, there is just so much there. So there, there's that audience. And then the other audience is people who they really like Peterson. They love the advice that they have gotten from him. Maybe they've watched a lot of YouTube videos. Maybe they read the book and some of the things that he talks about in terms of his foundation and you know, life is suffering and the very, it's very pessimistic and dark view of life at times in this book. And it's also very skeptical about the efficacy of human consciousness and thinking and reason. If those sorts of things in the book disturb you, I'm just here to say, I, as someone who's an objectivist, someone who thinks, yes, our senses are valid, even though they do have a nature, and we'll talk about that, there, there are ways to take all the advice and, and benefit from the value of Peterson, and you don't necessarily have to accept his entire foundation either. So I'm here as an example of somebody who doesn't share that foundation, and you could get a lot out of it. Um, so those are the, the two different audiences. Hopefully you'll enjoy this. I've really gotten a lot of value out of the book, as I said, and let's go through. I'm going to go. You're you're panicking because I'm flipping through a pile of notes here. But yeah, I've I've gone through. I made some notes. I'm going to try to go as quickly as possible, and then have you guys please give me questions, comments, call in. I would love if you do that again. Seven six zero eight 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 five eight one seven. Last time we left off at chapter four, 
And chapter four, the rule in, again, rule four is compare yourself to who you were yesterday, not to who someone else is today. And as I said last time, he talks about why it's not appropriate for you as an adult, particularly to compare yourself to others. He talks about the typical progression from child to adult. One of the questions that I have, and this runs through the book because he does talk about the progression that people make from childhood up to adulthood, that one of the necessary steps is something that he describes as joining the group or internalizing the values from the culture, which sounds you know, sort of collectivist, in order to become an individual adult, do you really have to not just leave your parents' house, but have that middle step where you are joining a group in some way? Is it joining a group? Is it maybe just making some sort of friends or human connection outside? It doesn't necessarily have to entail adopting the values of the culture. Uh, But he does use the values of a culture as a starting point in your journey of figuring out where you're going as an individual through your life. And that's something I think we can at least put a question mark on. Do you have to have the values of the culture? Might it be something else that you end up adopting to get away from your parents? He has a lot of great stuff about your inner critic and, you know, giving yourself the permission to say, hey, there are many good games that you can play in life. You don't have to. I don't have to compare myself to Ben Shapiro if I'm trying to do a talk show or something. I've got my journey. He's got his journey. And I can say, okay, what have I done with all the different games that I've played in my life? Uh, He also gives uh, great advice in here about consulting the emotion of resentment. If you're feeling resentment, he talks about this throughout the book. He says, If you are feeling resentment, there's one of two things going on. One of the things that could be going on is that you need to speak up about something that's truly bothering you, and it's something that you, as a reasonable person, should be bothered about, so you do need to speak up. But then, of course, the second option is that you're just, um, this is my language, not his, but you're like a spoiled brat, and you don't have any real good reason to feel the resentment. But nonetheless, you need to examine it. You need to figure out what's going on with it. So standing up for yourself is a good thing. What's the advice? He gives you advice about taking stock. Um, And he gives sort of the first pass of that on page 94 of the book before he goes into another section. And this is something we talked about last time, which is he has a whole section about our perception, our vision in particular, being affected by the aim that we've given ourselves. And there's a psychological study he cites. And it says, that when you have had people who have been given the assignment of watching a video and reporting how many times a ball, like in basketball, is passed from one team to the other, if you give them that assignment, they will focus with laser focus looking for that ball to be passed back and forth, and they will miss a gorilla, which has no place on the basketball court. It should stick out like a sore thumb, but a gorilla will walk right by and they'll miss it because they're focused so much on that aim of, of, um, you know, counting the number of ball passes. And he uses this in effect to say that, look, if you've had your focus on a particular aim in your life, that that can in effect blind you from seeing a whole bunch of other great possibilities that would be good for you. So that's the moral. But as he's delivering that, he says things 
that could engender skepticism about the validity of your senses. You know, that our sense organs have this thing, you know, where they conserve effort. And so they will focus on these things that are relevant to you in your, uh, you know, in, in the peripheral vision and stuff, right? So what I wanted to do is just give you Rand's basic argument. You know, uh, Objective Standard, uh, Craig Biddle had this piece recently, which was great. It's, you know, here's what's wrong with Ayn Rand's philosophy. Because there's all these people who are telling you what's wrong with Ayn Rand's philosophy. And they actually don't really understand it. And they'll misrepresent it. They'll set up a straw man and all this stuff. But he has this piece, and he'll tell you exactly accurately very basic tenets of her philosophy and why certain people out there in the culture are going to have a problem with it. And this could be a problem for them. And he has this great one. You know, again, this is very common for people to have the idea that you can't really perceive anything accurately. You certainly can't perceive so-called things in themselves, a la Kant. Um, And you, you know, you should not really trust your reason and your thinking. This, theme of not trusting your senses of you know there being certain important things in life that are just beyond the capacity of thought that is a theme throughout Peterson's book and the thing that I you know what I wanted to say about the the issue of the validity of consciousness and the validity of the senses comes from this book from Leonard Peikoff Opar we call it Objectivism of Philosophy of Ayn Rand and he you know, makes the very simple point, which was made by Biddle in his post. Biddle says, you know, Rand rejects the idea, and I'm paraphrasing here, but it's it's close to an exact quote. Rand rejects the idea that we are blind because we have eyes, deaf because we have ears, etc. And what Rand meant in that quotation is that, yes, our sense organs and of course the parts of our brain that process the sense organs and the parts of our brain that control the sense organs all of that has a nature right there there and it's it's limited and in a certain sense you know um peterson really understands what it is that you know if you're if something's going to exist at all it has to be limited in nature um there's at the very end of the book he talks about you know, that anything that is being by itself, it has to be by its nature limited. This is true of our sense organs. We could not perceive anything unless we had sense organs that actually existed. And everything that exists, if you look around, just look around you, everything that exists has a nature. So it, it, anything that has a nature has a specific identity. It's going to be limited in a certain way, but that doesn't make it invalid. It doesn't make it invalid. And I believe last time I gave the example, this is the t- example that's typically given is when you put a stick in water, it doesn't look like it's straight anymore. It looks like it's bent. Why? Because the light is refracted by the water. The sunlight is refracted by the water, say. And so therefore the, the stick doesn't look straight. That is not your senses deceiving you. That is your senses giving you all sorts of information about the effects of light when it's refracted by the water in a certain way and it makes the objects under the water look different. So your senses are giving you a lot of information. If you want to find out whether this stick is actually bent or straight, what do you do? You pull it out. You look at it in different light. We've got 
you know, these hands and we can feel it. We can also feel it and tell that it's straight by feeling it. We don't have to pull it out of the water. We can feel it under the water, right? So we have a number of different senses. Each of those, you know, means of sensory perception has a certain nature and is limited, but the information is rich enough and we're able to cross-reference the information that we get from all of our other senses and we're able to infer and reason and discover, you know, why does the stick look bent in water through science? Our senses are not invalid. Our senses give us the, the information. I mean, they work, they work quite well. Now, some people's sense organs don't work well. So, you know, Helen Keller, for example, the fact that she was be able to become a conceptual being and a very good thinking conceptual being at that is not a miracle, but, you know, it was, it's an amazing, you know, such a testament to her and then also a testament to her teacher, Annie Sullivan, because she didn't have the rich range of sensory data that a normal, healthy human being has. But we have all of these things. They're valid. Do we have to take into account the nature of our senses? Is it good advice for Peterson to say that, um, you know, if, if you are aiming at a certain thing, you're going to be blinded to all the opportunities out there. And so you might consider giving yourself a different sort of aim and say that instead of, you know, this particular job that I've been focused on or whatever, why don't I just give myself the assignment of I'm looking for any life that's better for me right now. That's sort of the way he phrases it. If you do that and you say, okay, I'll look for any job that's better for me right now, then is, are you going to become aware of more different possibilities for you. Yes, you will. So it, it's good advice. Um, it doesn't have to be on the foundation of saying, oh, there's something wrong with our senses and our senses can't really see things in themselves and, you know, sort of bewailing it. And, you know, that the limited nature of being, the limited nature of our sense organs, the fact that reason itself is limited, that we can't be omniscient at any particular point in time, that in more, we're in certain states of emergency that we are more likely to act based on our emotions or fear or other things and that we need to be aware of this. None of this means that reason is invalid or that thinking is invalid in any way. So this is something I just wanted to highlight um, because it is a theme. It is a place of disagreement. I don't think it's a full all the way down to the root disagreement because, again, there are places in his book where he acknowledges that being is limited. Um, and, I, and I think that if you know we had a conversation, maybe we could come to more of an agreement on those things. But, you know, at, at, at root, he believes in God or he believes in the power of following what people take, you know, God to have told us to do, right? So, and that's a, it's a very different orientation than I have in my life because I've been an atheist since age 12. So, I, you know, we do come from very different places. But on some of these things, I think we might have more common ground than a lot of people think. If you want to look at OPAR, you would look at the chapter on sense perception and volition if you wanted to uh, read more on this. Rand rejects writes Leonard Peikoff, the root of the types of error that we're talking about here. He says, she begins not by bewailing the nature of human consciousness, but by insisting on it. 
The fact that man's cognitive faculties have a nature does not invalidate them. It is what makes them possible. Identity is not the disqualifier of consciousness, but its precondition. This is the base from which epistemology must proceed. It is the principle by reference to which all standards of cognition must be defined. Okay, so on the one hand, yes, our senses have a nature. They have to in order to exist. Um, we are able to correct any what we think would be errors or correct, you know, the, kind of incorrect inferences that we make about what we perceive by continuing on with the process of reason, which starts with evidence of the senses and then goes ahead and integrate and everything else. Like I said, you know, if you wonder, is that stick straight or is it bent? There are a number of ways you can investigate it. You can pull it out. You can feel it underneath the wall. There's lots of evidence there. And the process of reason consists, notwithstanding some of the comments that he makes about in the book, you know, about reason, Part of reason, at least as objectivists understand it, is to be open to evidence, to new evidence about things that are important to you, and to continually integrate that evidence, which is, again, something that I've been doing in reading Peterson's book. So that's the first point that I want to make. And as I said, it comes in really big in Chapter 4 in that vision sense. And then, you know, he actually extends the argument about our faculties being invalid in a certain way when he has that discussion. And I posted these two pages with some marginalia pages, one Oh two and one Oh three. When he talks about atheism, can you know you're an atheist? And he says in effect that our psychology is such that you can't really know what you truly believe unless you watch how you act, that you are sometimes unaware of what you believe. And Again, if you say, okay, well, human beings are built with a certain psychological mechanism such that, you know, for example, we make decisions when we're really young about how to interpret the world. And um, those decisions that we make can affect us without us really knowing when we react to things as we go throughout our lives, right? There's, there's, our psychology has a nature and it's limited and certain knee-jerk reactions to the world around us can be shaped when we're very young. That is part of our nature. But that does that make us incapable of saying at any point in time, you know, me saying at this point in time, for example, that based on everything I know about the way that I have, including the way I've behaved throughout my life, because I had to think about it because of this book, that I'm an atheist? No. I mean, I don't have a doubt that I'm an atheist. I don't think it's, appropriate for him to say this. Now, you could say, well, uh, you know, Amy, there's a whole lot you still haven't explored about yourself. And of course, you know, one of the things about exploring about myself is reading this book or talking to a psychologist or talking to friends or just talking to myself, thinking about things. Um, yes. Do I have things to learn? Nonetheless, at any given point in time, I'm going to state what I think my beliefs are and, and, you know, have knowledge based on that be honest about it obviously if you know if i say oh god you know i've been praying <laughs> i put god in there of course um you know i've been praying every night but i'm trying to tell people i'm an atheist or something that would be dishonest right so i have to be honest about it but when i'm making an assessment about what my beliefs are it's within my context of knowledge about myself 
And you could say, well, the person with an active mind who's responsible, who always wants to improve himself, will continually try to expand the amount of knowledge that they have about themselves and, you know, about the world as such, not just sticking your own brain all the time. Um, but, you, you know, you should be doing that. That is something that somebody who wants to improve is going to do. Yes, good. And, and you might say, okay, well, Amy, you've been deficient. But nonetheless, that statement, if I say I'm an atheist, I, I don't think he should tell me, no, I'm not, because I'm doing that, you know, I'm making that statement within the total context of my knowledge. He talks about, um, you know, a, a character in, in fiction who acted on the idea that he was an atheist and ended up murdering and everything else. The When you think that God doesn't exist, it doesn't necessarily mean that morality couldn't exist or that, you know, if, if you think you're an atheist, if you actually believed you were an atheist, you would go around harming other people and killing people and stealing their cows and all those types of things. I, you you wouldn't need to do that, especially if you believe that there is an ethics apart from God. So, yeah, I do believe that I've behaved consistently with my beliefs as, as an atheist. So, um, yes. You know, again, at the psychological level, do we have things within us that can sometimes make it difficult to understand ourselves or, uh, you know, get at our motivations for certain things, get, get at our beliefs? Yes, but that doesn't make anything about this invalid and it doesn't make my statement, I'm an atheist, it doesn't make it untrue. And you know, the way that he dismisses that, you know, because he's talking to the reader, he's saying, you think you're an atheist? No, you're not. It's kind of, it is insulting. It's kind of insulting, but whatever. I, you know, again, I get so much value from this book. I'm going to continue to go on with it anyway. Um, as I said, one of his main themes in this chapter, perhaps your error and vision is preventing you from seeing uh, the things out there, the opportunities that you could have if you gave up on your current aim. The other theme that he brings in is a more biblical one, and he talks about the nature of the Old Testament God versus the New Testament God. The Old Testament God is this God who takes vengeance on man when man goes wrong, you know, when he's uh, kind of losing his way. And then the New Testament God is somebody who's a lot more benevolent and People can have under, uh, kind of trouble believing in a New Testament God when they look at the nature of the world out there. There's so much suffering in the world, etc. Et and so one of the things that he is asking the reader to do is basically make a leap of faith and act as if, in effect, the New Testament God is the same as the Old Testament God, that if you just improved yourself and did the right thing that this would be revealed to you the world would become a better place it would become a place less filled with suffering because you know this is one of the pieces of advice that he wants to give throughout is he wants to stave off the horrible tyrannies of the 20th century he wants to help people have better lives lives full of less suffering and he says, maybe you could do this. Um, on page 107, he writes, 
the tragic irrationalities of life must be counterbalanced by an equally irrational commitment to the essential goodness of being. You know, he says it's natural, and he says this throughout the book, it's natural for people to doubt that being is good, that the New Testament God is really who he's presented as, you know, as a sort of benevolent father figure. You doubt that when you look at all the pain and suffering in the world. And he says what you need to do is you need to, in effect, make a leap of faith. Um, he says, and I'm actually going back a little bit on the, again on this page 107. He says, suppose, he says, you decide to act as if existence might be justified by its goodness if only you behaved properly. Existential faith, he calls this. And how do you start? He says, you start by not thinking. He says, rationality and its narrowness of view is something that you need to dismiss. Quit maneuvering and calculating, conniving and scheming, enforcing, demanding, avoiding, ignoring and punishing, etc. Instead, pay attention. And this is when he revisits the advice that he gives. What's the advice? Search until you find something that bothers you, that you could fix, that you would fix, and then fix it. The kind of paradigm question he tells you to ask yourself is, what could I do that I would do to make life a little better? And then you do that, and then the next day you do more, and you do more, and you continue to compare yourself to who you were yesterday and not who you were today. Um, so, you know, what are, the, what are the different reasons that you do this? Your internal critic isn't fair. Your vision is limited by your aim, and you're failing to see that if you just behave properly, goodness and being might reveal itself, and you might see the New Testament God and the Old Testament God as one in the same. I don't think you need that religious message in order to appreciate the other bits of advice. We are all very individual. And yeah, should I judge myself against what Ben Shapiro has done? No, not necessarily. I have had a whole different plate of things uh, dealt to me. I've done a whole bunch of different things in my life. I've had a different journey than he is. So I should judge myself along all the different games that I play, as he puts it, and, um, you know, make sure to try to improve each day, try to do something that is that tiny bit of a stretch for me. That's a little bit of the challenge for me, but not so scary that it's horribly overwhelming. And that's the, you know, kind of the kind of journey that I've been on. And, and as I said, this book helps me, I'll give you one example of how this book has helped me within the last 24 hours. So, um, a lot of people are familiar with Ben Shapiro having said on that Ruben thing, and that, you know, it was that Ruben thing that I watched. I watched it too. He talked about the fact that he loves Ayn Rand on economics, but on personal relationship, oh, she's kind of garbage or whatever. And it, the comment, it wasn't really clear in the way that he stated it. So I don't know exactly what he means by that comment, although he talked about the fact that it wasn't really selfish for him to stay home and take care of his kid. And I forget what he was going to go out doing. I don't think he was going to go clubbing or something, but um, you know, he could go out. And I actually, as an objectivist, I don't think it's selfish for him to leave his wife with the screaming baby and go out and everything. And so there's at least that conversation I would want to have with him, but also I would just kind of want to draw him out more and, and talk about it. Um, I hadn't said anything about it. And a lot of people 
for instance, I retweeted Ben Shapiro the other day and an objectivist comes in and says, you know, why are you retweeting him? Because he said that Ayn Rand's philosophy is garbage. And then yesterday I got my email. I'm on the email list for the objective standard. Craig Biddle had this blog post and it was about, you know, the garbage comment. It was in the email that I got. So I go and I look at it and he has a pointed question to Shapiro about that garbage comment. It's like, okay, this is way too easy. Um, I don't talk about it a lot, but I'm, I feel pretty privileged about this, that Ben Shapiro follows me on Twitter. I don't know exactly why. Um, that would be fun to have that conversation. But I did meet him in person once, and we had a good conversation about a point in law some years ago. So that could be why. Um, anyway, so sometimes he retweets me, and I've told you guys that. And, of course, I would love to continue to be followed and retweeted by Ben Shapiro. He's got this huge audience, and I'm trying to build an audience, right? The, um, haven't said anything about the garbage comment, but here's, here's Craig. Craig's got the blog post. It's perfect. And I've read Peterson's book. And in Peterson's book, he talks about in Rule 10, be precise in your speech. It, it's more about relationships, personal relationships. I don't have a personal relationship with Ben Shapiro. I've seen him one time in person in my life. Um, but nonetheless, you know, this idea that if there is something and you feel like you need to speak up for what you believe, then you should do it. So, Okay. So I take the quotation from Biddle's post and I share the link out on Twitter. I didn't even tag Shapiro in it, but I went ahead and just put it and I know he follows me. It's like, okay, I have to at least do this because Shapiro did say my philosophy is garbage. So, okay, put it out there. And I did. And then Shapiro comes back and he says it's out of context. And he actually does believe that, you know, the, he said he loves the economics and that the, philosophy of personal relationships. I forget exactly how I said it, you know, it's garbage. So I write back and I say, can we discuss this at some point? And I don't want to have a debate, right? I'd like to have a discussion, a Peterson style discussion that he describes in chapter nine of his book. Um, but yeah, you know, reading this book is just one little extra nudge. Of course, I've got the virtue of integrity from objectivism myself, but you know, this idea that you need to speak up for the things that are important to you. You need to speak your mind so that, you know, in effect, you don't feel like you're making yourself smaller. Wouldn't I feel badly about myself if it's like, oh, well, I don't want to make Ben Shapiro upset with me because he follows me on Twitter and he retweets me. And sometimes I get a lot of, I get a lot of followers sometimes if he retweets me, especially if it's something that appeals to his audience, which one of the last ones, actually, I think the very last one was that Peterson meme. And yeah, I got all these new followers and everything. Great. But imagine that I'm wanting to have that value and then I'm not speaking up in a polite way, but in a challenging way and, and saying, hey, can we talk about this? I disagree with you. Of course, I don't think my philosophy is garbage. I wouldn't believe in it. Can we talk? Um, so I did that within the last 24 hours. So that's part of what the book. Now, any good book or any good little video I watched on YouTube might have given me that, but it's just, it's an example. Um, oh, Jay in the chat room, or not in the chat room, but over at the comments at Blog Talk Radio. You're not omniscient, therefore you must believe in omniscience. Yeah, that could be a way that you could see the, the error. Yeah, so pay attention. Judge yourself by comparing yourself to the person you were yesterday, not today. Oh my gosh, I got to go faster. Okay, chapter five. Do not let your children do anything that makes you dislike them. And he talks about the consequences of and the reasons for parents 
spoiling or otherwise mistreating their children. He talks about the arithmetic of it, and it's quite funny. You know, if you have a child, for example, who doesn't go to sleep well, and so you spend all this time sort of fighting to get the kid to bed. If you talk about how much time that is every night and you add it up over the course of a year, it can be a lot of time. So that was kind of interesting. Um, there's a little bit of a foray into, into philosophy there as well. But then on pages 118 to 119, he talks about the fact that kids, he says, are not, quote, noble savages. Generally, he says, people improve with age. They mellow out. He talks about the violent nature of chimps. He talks about hunter-gatherers versus today on page 121. And his um, overall message is that the social structures that we have instituted are have reduced the quote violent tendencies of human beings they have also uh, increased our uh, capacity for for self-control that we are controlling ourselves um, and so what is the moral of this right the fact that we have become more civilized that violence is reduced over time he says you have to socialize kids and that there is this damage by omission. So here I'll give you a little bit of, you know, sort of, you know, what I got out of this personally. Um, on pages 122 to 123, he talks about what the damage by omission by parents is. And he says that, you know, if parents neglect their kids, that what will happen is when they are given attention by good adults later, they'll end up, in effect, being really high maintenance. That's not how he puts it. But that, you know, he, he had said, for example, these kids who were neglected when he went to a place where there were some neglected kids, he said they would flop nearby or directly on my lap no matter what I was doing, driven inexorably by the powerful desire for adult attention, the necessary catalyst for further development. And so for me, there was a bit of, uh, a bit, quite a bit of neglect when I was a kid. I had parents who were alcoholics, okay, just to let you uh, in on stuff that I've dealt with. So, you know, one of the things was I was left to my own devices and I wasn't given a religious framework. And so I was able to think and decide that for myself. And I always saw that as a benefit. But when I read this and I see, okay, psychologically what happens, yeah, if you don't have that adult attention, then any adult later who gives you that attention, you're just going to be really high maintenance for them. And he says, you know, his inclination was to not spend time with those kids because it was just too much work. Uh, and what I have, I, I, you know, when I look back, I think, okay, teachers, um, even a college professor who has been so much help to me, I actually did go back to a college professor who had been a lot of help to me and say, hey, thank you. And I'm sorry of, you know, all the effort you must have had to put into me at that particular time in my life, I was dealing with a lot of problems with my parents being alcoholics during college and stuff, too. It was, I mean, I don't, you know, who knows what it must have been like, right? So I see that in myself. I, like I said, I'd already gone back and apologized, but at least you identify a lot more. So that's the sort of thing you can get out of this book. Uh, it talks about, do people want to be parents or do they want to be friends? And a lot of parents want to be friends to their kids, and so therefore they avoid disciplining them. He's got some great stories in there, some wonderful, uh, you know, kind of fun writing on 
page 124 in particular, you know, he says, children are perfectly capable of attempting to subsist on hot dogs, chicken fingers, and fruit loops if doing so will attract attention, provide power, or shield them from trying anything new. So if you're looking for great uh, advice on, um, you know, parenting and, and delivered in a humorous way, this book is there. Uh, let's see what else. He's got a pessimistic view of human nature that comes out in this chapter as well on page 125. You know, again, he says violence, you know, that violence is the default, that it's easy, peace is difficult, et cetera. He, he's obviously been exposed to people who have a violent nature. He talks about how a very small minority of, of kids have a violent nature from early on and that that can be corrected before age four through discipline and about the importance of doing this. One of the greatest stories in that chapter, it is awesome. If, if you are a parent, you want to read it just to get the humor out of it. I bet you would appreciate it. Uh, it's the story about changing, you know, kind of exchanging duties or sharing parenting duties with neighbors. So you take the neighbor's kids, so that they can go out for a night and then they take your kids, right? So he had the neighbor's kids and one of the neighbor's kids was really bad, wouldn't go to sleep. And he talks about all the things he did to correctly ensure that that child went to sleep with kind of like the minimal fuss, did not reward the kid as the kid had typically been rewarded by the parents for, you know, behavior that was difficult, right? Great story. It's pages 128 to 129 is just priceless, highly recommended. Um, so discipline, you need to discipline and you need to use, he says, both reward and punishment. He talks about operant conditioning, which I knew from dog training. Um, I don't have any parenting advice to give myself, but I do know dog training. And um, in dog training, we learned about this clicker training where you can shape a behavior. You can reward any incremental step that the dog gives you toward the behavior that you're looking for. And typically in dog training, we mark the behavior that we were looking for with a clicker because you can do that instantaneously, even faster than you can say the word yes, which I do if I don't have a clicker on hand. Um, but in any event, that is effective, but it's quite slow. And so he says sometimes it's appropriate for punishment. Um, from a philosophical bend, he talks about pain being more potent than pleasure. And from an objectivist perspective, we're always looking at motivation by love versus motivation by fear. And we would always prefer the reward. We would always prefer to teach someone about the intrinsic reward of behaving well. If you know, if you're talking about a human being in particular, if you're talking about a dog, it's all about giving them that treat. They know that if they give you a certain behavior that they can have the treat. Although I got to say in dog agility as well, my dog, the one that was my big competition dog, Boo, she just loved it. And she would overcome mud and wet grass and everything else, stuff she normally hated just to run that course. So you know that they get the intrinsic benefit too. You want them to be motivated by the reward as much as possible, but are there potentially situations where punishment would be appropriate and needed? Yeah, perhaps so. Um, on page 132, he talks about you can't shelter kids from pain and you have to 
at the same time also shape their behavior. So let me get to 132. What did I have in mind there? Sorry, there's just so much in this book that I can't always remember off the top of my head. Um, He says, yeah, okay, this is what I had. He says, the fundamental moral question is not how to shelter children completely from misadventure and failure so they never experience any fear or pain, but instead how to maximize their learning so that useful knowledge may be gained with minimal cost. So you would like them to learn certain lessons if they're going to end up having some pain or injury or anything else, some, some kind of suffering, you'd like them to learn as much as possible from each, each instance of that. And he gives some suggestions. Um, he talks about, you know, some obvious situations in which a parent might say, yeah, I might use a little bit of physical punishment in certain situations. Like if the kid's going to run out and get hit by a car, you know, they're, they're going to be killed you'd say, okay, maybe if I need to stop that kind of behavior with a, you know, pat on the butt or whatever it is, right, you could do that. But he also has the view, and this would be controversial, and someone who's a parenting expert would want to talk about it. I can't speak to it one way or the other. But he said he said that it's also important, even for young kids, maybe in social situations, to socialize them. So that if you had one of the difficult two-year-olds who was prone to violence towards other kids. Again, he says it's a very small percentage, statistically speaking. But he talks about a mom might flick, you know, with a finger a little bit on the hand of a child who was violent toward another child. And that that might be very appropriate. And he says, look, if you don't have a kid properly socialized before age four, and it's one of these kids who's prone to violence, you know, towards others and stuff that they might be shunned socially and not able to continue their self-development as proper human beings. And that's something to, to think about. And it's, you know, not anything, you know, like I said, that, you know, objectivism as philosophy doesn't have any particular thing to say about this one way or the other, you know, you'd have to go and look at the evidence about this and make a decision, you know, is, some sort of physical correction appropriate only when the stakes are the kid's going to die otherwise, or are there situations that are less dire than that, but maybe serious enough that you might consider, you know, he talks about using the minimal force necessary in any situation in order to achieve the appropriate learning result. And he's, you know, he's not about going and spanking kids all the time. You know, he says on the one hand, have the minimal number of rules that you insist be enforced and use the minimal type of punishment necessary. He says, you know, some kids, you just glare at them and that's enough to get the result. Some kids might need the timeout. Some kids might need the timeout with a physical restraint. And then some kids might require a little bit more than that. You know, use the minimum necessary force. So limit the rules, use the minimum necessary force. Something very positive in terms of Peterson's perspective on human nature on page 138, he says, watching people respond to children. He he talks about when your kids are well-behaved and you take them out in public and everyone is so, you know, kind of doting over them and and complimenting you on them and the the children feel good because they know that the people like them and that they're well-regarded. You know, he says, watching people respond to children restores your faith in human nature. 
you know, again, he's got, if you read the book, you'll see he's got reason to be skeptical about it. Uh, He's got a great little passage in here about what the mean of no is, right? That um, the word no is meaningless unless you're ready to back it up with some sort of physical limitation if necessary. Uh, And, you know, this goes beyond kids. He says a woman can say no to a powerful narcissistic man only because she has social norms, the law, and the state backing her up. A parent can say no to a child who wants a third piece of cake because he or she is larger, stronger, and more capable than the child and is additionally backed up in his authority by law and state. What no means in the final analysis is always, quote, if you continue to do that, something you do not like will happen to you, end quote. He says, otherwise it means nothing. So that you have to be able um, you know, to, to back it up if necessary, only if necessary though, right? Page 140, I love this one. He says, the only time no ever means no in the absence of violence is when it is uttered between, excuse me, uttered by one civilized person to another. And you could integrate that into the whole recent Me Too and everything else. The only time no ever means no in the absence of violence is when it is uttered by one civilized person to another, which is amazing. Um, he, he, at the end of this chapter, he helpfully summarizes because it's a long chapter and he adds, you know, parents should come in pairs. He has sympathy for those who have to leave brutal relationships and become single parents. But nonetheless, he says, there's no comparison if you've got a two parent household, uh, page 142, let me get there about the capacity for evil. He says, people have a great capacity for evil as well as good. And, um, oh, what, oh, what is it? Okay. Sorry, I lost my context here. Um, oh, yeah, parents have to understand that they themselves have the capacity to be harsh, vengeful, arrogant, resentful, angry, and deceitful. People have a great capacity for evil, he says, as well as good. And because they remain willfully blind to that, fact they they will remain willfully blind to their propensities again i would disagree overall you know he he does have this negative view of human nature that's expressed throughout the book and i i think it's overly emphasized at the same time um it was in this chapter that he talked about the fact that there are kids you know people who were abused as children that they are less likely, they're unlikely to perpetuate that and then abuse their own children. That over time, generation to generation, abuse of children is eradicated. And he says it's a great testament to human nature. So he's a mixed case about this, but overall the pessimism ends up coming through. And so I always feel like I want to counter it. Um, Okay, let's see what else. Yeah, on 143, he repeats, he says, making children socially desirable is more important than fostering their individual identity. And he gives a warning about not making your children socially desirable. You know, what it is, what what consists of proper behavior for children, et cetera. As an objectivist, will we say that? Will we say, okay, it's more important than fostering individual 
identity. I mean, you do want to have some sort of minimum social desirability for a child because you want the child to be able to have proper relationships as he or she gets older. Um, But at the same time, is it more important? Would you say, oh, no, you want to foster individual identity and also do that? Where's the priority? Obviously, he puts the priority on the children evolving in the, quote, traditional way. As I said, he thinks you have to leave your parents' house, join the group, adopt the cultural values, and then you can individuate yourself uh, appropriately. And he thinks that that's, in effect, the necessary progression, maybe just because it is the customary progression for so many people. Is it the necessary progression? Do you have to phrase it as adopting the values of the culture, uh, as joining the, the group? Or is it just finding some kind of relationship outside of your parents? Another way to possibly see it. Um, okay, let me look over here. Comments. Selfishness in the chat room over at Blog Talk Radio says he sounds like religion or God is like a public utility of the moral and psychological nature of man. And because you use that utility, you agree with it. That could be a one way of phrasing his perspective on it because he doesn't necessarily say you would have to believe in God. I think he'd be happy if you're agnostic and you're willing to, quote, walk with God, act as if there is a God who commanded the various things. Okay, how am I doing? Oh, gosh, I'm so behind. I am so behind. I need to try to go faster. Okay, rule six, set your house in perfect order before you criticize the world. He has a section talking about mass murderers seeing themselves as adversaries of being as such, of living life as a human being, as we are trying to make sense of the world around us, always trying to increase our understanding, improve ourselves, live lives of meaning. But mass murderers, they reject all that. They are adversaries. And he quotes from Faust, Mephistopheles as embodying this sort of ethic. And on 149, he talks about life and truth is very hard. Whose fault is it? And here he appeals to Tolstoy because Tolstoy um, talks about, you know, whose fault could it be that life is so hard, that it seems so unfair? And, um, you know, what are, what are the different options? Um, he says, the towering Leo Tolstoy himself began to question the very value of human existence. And he quotes from him at the end of the quotation, Tolstoy writes, life is meaningless and evil. And I see Peterson here sort of appealing to the authority of of Tolstoy in in a certain way because he's saying, you know, the towering Leo Tolstoy. And then later he talks about, um, let's see, yeah, a mind as profound as that of the celebrated Russian author. You know, again, this, this, being an antagonist to being itself. And what does it mean to be an antagonist of being itself? You question whether there's anything good about life. And moreover, you question whether human beings should ever have existed. And you decide that human beings are sort of a scourge on the earth. And you decide you're going to make good on that by going to, you know, kill all these people and then kill yourself because you want to be consistent and show yourself to be consistent in the process. 
Um, what are the different options in terms of who you can blame? You can blame either God or fate. And he throws out there the idea, well, maybe there is some truth in, to the matter here. Perhaps it really is God's doing, or perhaps, you know, it's blind, the fault of blind, pointless faith. Maybe, maybe it is. Now, what are the modes of escape? He talks about the modes of escape that Tolstoy posited. And there were four different modes of escape, retreat into childlike ignorance, pursue mindless pleasure. Um, and what is the third? I can't get the third, but he says the fourth and final mode is the one that, quote, involves strength and energy, destroying life once one has realized life is meaningless. So that fourth mode is the thing you're going to decide, you know, you're going to go ahead and just kill people, kill yourself, make good on this idea that you think being is evil. Um, and on 151, he says, well, maybe it really is God's doing or the fault of fate. And those two are going to be the things that make you feel like you are an enemy of being as such and that you're going to do something about it, that maybe you're going to kill others or, or kill yourself or both. If you blame God or fate, he thinks that that is going to lead to murder. So what's the third option? The third option is maybe blame yourself. Maybe blame yourself. And this is where you get to the rule, right? Set your house, self, set your house in perfect order before you criticize the world. What he, in fact, tells you to do, uh, oh, actually, it's in this chapter, sorry, that he says that abuse disappears across generations. It's not in the, the last one. Sorry, I, I forgot which one. This is in chapter six. Um, so there is, you know, good. He says, abuse disappears across generations. It's a testament to the genuine dominance of good over evil in the human heart. He tells a number of stories in this chapter about people who, having had horrible backgrounds, nonetheless overcome, they don't see themselves as adversaries of the whole human race or adversaries of being. They don't perpetuate abuse. They don't become murderers. They actually go out and they do good in the world. And he seems amazed, and he says as much that he's very amazed that people are able to do that because he thinks it's quite understandable to reach the other conclusion that it's either God's fault or fate's fault and to take vengeance on everybody. Um, but so what is he doing through those stories? Through those stories, he's saying, look, there are people who have made a different choice. They have chosen not to blame God or fate, and they've chosen to criticize themselves, to look at themselves and improve themselves. He also talks about whole peoples, how in particular Jewish people uh, ended up blaming themselves when things were going wrong because they figured they must have deserved and incurred the wrath of God. And then they would go ahead and, and repent and try to improve themselves. He says, if you are suffering, well, that's the norm. But he says, if you think your suffering is unbearable, here's something to think about. And he says, look, you could make this choice too. You could clean up your life. You could set your house in, in perfect order as he tries it. He says, have you cleaned up your life? Something to try. He says, question how you know that what you're doing is wrong. If you decided that there's something that what you're doing is wrong, don't ask why you think it's wrong. Just go on the assumption that what you're doing is wrong and just go out and fix it. Top of page 158, he says, inopportune questioning can confuse without enlightening 
as well as deflecting you from action. You can know that something is right or wrong without knowing why. He says, we can all contain wisdom that we can't comprehend. So whatever manner that you've decided that you're acting that you believe is despicable, he says, stop doing it. And he says, do only those things that you could speak of with honor. Have some humility and then just keep getting rid of all the things that you're doing that you know are wrong. And what will you be left with? He says, you will then be left with the inevitable bare tragedies of life. He says, but they will no longer be compounded with bitterness and deceit. I don't remember exactly where in the book that he talks about this. There's so many rules, but he has this discussion about families faced with tragedy and how if you compound tragedy with deceit and and everything, it's probably in the chapter um, about speaking the truth. If you compound it with deceit, it can make everything so much worse and and increase the suffering by so much. But this this is what he says. He says, look, in effect, you have the ability to choose. You know, you say, okay, life is horrible. I'm miserable. All these horrible things have been done to me. You know, he talks about people being bullied and abused and all of this. And, and he believes, you know, if Tolstoy got to the point where it seemed very natural to blame being as such, then it would be natural to do this. Nonetheless, even if this seems plausible, I mean, it's possible that it's God's fault. It's possible that it's fate's fault. Nonetheless, look, there's these people who just decided to make a choice, a choice to blame themselves potentially and try to improve themselves. He says, you have the ability to choose this. Don't think too hard about why. Don't think about it. You know, if you think that there's something you've been doing that's wrong, just correct it. And then he says, you know, make make this arbitrary decision in effect. Don't ask why. Just you have the option. Just choose it. See how it goes. Act a certain way. See how it goes. Maybe life will get better. And put your house in perfect order. Now, to me, there's a couple different problems here. One is, why should people demand that being be, quote, good? Um, you know, there are the inevitable, he's, you know, inevitable bare tragedies of life is how he puts it. What Rand would talk about is, is that's the metaphysical The metaphysical is things like, you know, you get cancer because you have some genetic predisposition to it or something. These things happen. You can't judge them as evil in any particular way. The only things that you would judge as good or evil as, you know, within a standard of value is human action. So, you know, this idea that you say, okay, well, because, some tragedy has happened, therefore humanity as such is bad or being as such is terrible, that, that is making a philosophical error. It's a, it's a philosophical error that you could talk about and correct and say, look, it just is. Uh, the, the fact that one particular person abused you or two parents abused you doesn't mean that the entire human race is suspect and bad and, and deserves to be wiped out. You can point to, you know, within a person, you say, look, you have free will. You have choices about this. Now, the fact that you have choices about this, look, you know, see, he says you have the choice to be good. But his idea is you just make this as a leap of faith. You don't then, therefore, make conclusions about human beings. He's still very pessimistic about human nature or tendencies. And he's saying, really, that the way to 
to stave off those bad tendencies is for people to make a leap of faith to say, hey, I don't necessarily have a good reason to put the blame on myself, but what if I decided to do that and I just acted that way and I saw what happened? That's the, the way that he gives the advice. The way I would give the advice is to say, hey, look, you know, first of all, are you really justified in blaming the entire human race for the actions of people who have done you wrong? Um, are you justified in blaming nature or anything at all because of somebody getting cancer or some other unavoid, you know, unavoidable tragedy, hurricane, whatever? No, um, you know, that's the nature of the world. It's nothing that you can blame. Life is limited. We live on a certain planet with a, a certain nature and there's things that happen. Human beings have certain frailties about us. Um, so you can talk about these things in, in terms of a rational philosophy. You'd say, okay, well, maybe these people that he's speaking to, maybe the people that he's speaking to are people who would not be open to reason in this way. And so he thinks he needs to talk to them in this way and say, okay, is your house set in perfect order? That's the one last thing I wanted to say is set your house in perfect order. What does he mean by perfect? Objectivists mean certain things by perfect. So perfect would be, you know, I'm behaving perfectly if at any given point in time, I am doing everything that I know how to do to become a better person, to do the things that I know are right in that moment. So if I had gotten that email yesterday from Craig and I looked at the you know blog post and about Shapiro's garbage comment and I was thinking, okay, you know, I could just not do anything. And boy, you know, I love having Ben Shapiro follow me and retweet me sometime. I get new followers and it's really cool. And uh, now nah, I think I'd, if, if I didn't send it out there when I thought, yeah, really, I need to say something at this point, I feel like I have to, and I didn't do it, then that would not be perfect. But perfect would be, yeah, that at any given point in time, I'm doing what I can. Does that mean that Everything is in perfect order? No. I mean, even, you know, you look around my office here, I think there's things I could improve. It's not quite as put in all places that I like yet. It's getting there. But, um, but yeah, other places in my house are messy right now, and I want to go clean them up after the show is over. Is it in perfect order? Perfect, perfect? No, no, no. Um, But what is perfect? Perfect is judged by your total context. All the games that you're playing is the way that he would put it. Um. So is there good advice here? Yes. If you take him literally in certain ways, do I think that he's giving you advice that is arbitrary and potentially impossible to live up to? I don't know, but maybe that's the goal, right? You say, okay, if you're really a person who is set against being as such, then you are a person who maybe should be given an arbitrary choice and a goal of perfection that can never be reached or something. I don't, I don't know. Um, What is true, though, I would think, is that for any human being, if you could be talked into going down the steps that he lays out here, yeah, you would feel better about yourself. But the reasons for that and, you know, the the advice that you're going to give to somebody who doesn't share his context is going to be different. Um, Rule seven, pursue what is meaningful, not what is expedient. I'm already into my second hour. This is... This is hard. Let me see what I can do here. Um. Get to my notes. Okay. So, yeah, so he talks about 
the fact at the beginning life is suffering. Hedonism could be seen as the antidote to suffering or what? And he talks about the evolution of the idea of the delay of gratification, that we somehow learned how to delay gratification and that human life got better because of this. You know, you realize if you save a little bit of food for later, you might not be starving later. If you shared some of your perishable food with somebody else now, maybe later when they had some food that they couldn't eat all by themselves, they would share it with you, right, et cetera. All this good stuff would happen for you. What's important in this discussion in Chapter 7 for me was to keep in mind his use of the term sacrifice. When he talks about sacrifice, just plain sacrifice, he doesn't mean what objectivists often mean by sacrifice. This idea, for, for me, sacrifice would mean that you are actually giving up something of a higher value for something of a lesser value or you know, potentially no value at all. And he really just means an opportunity cost sort of situation. You give up something now and you'll get something better later. Um, but... Uh, you know, he actually does, I think, understand the difference because, and I can't remember exactly where it is. I'm sorry, it's a big book. At one point, he talks about what a real sacrifice would be. And I forget the language that he uses, but he makes it clear that he understands what it would be to give up something that's actually of a higher value to you for something that's a lesser or non-value. So he doesn't use the term the way that we would. Um, now, this whole thing about delay of gratification Basically, this is what we end up embodying in religion. He says that human beings, and I'm not quoting exactly, I'm going to try to skip through. Um, human beings came to understand that the world was controlled as if there was some being that you could bargain with there. So in effect, this is how religion came about, and this is how we got Christianity. Christianity, in turn solved a lot of problems that human beings had. He saw Christianity as responsible, for example, uh, for creating uh, human freedom, people being treated a whole lot better, no longer subject to slavery, et cetera. And he says it gave rise to new problems. We were able now to, you know, kind of put our attention on new problems because of certain problems that Christianity had solved. And therefore we were able to explore science. So it's a whole evolution, right? Um, life is suffering. Is hedonism the antidote? No, we learn that if we delay gratification, we can minimize suffering. And from that, we end up personifying and bringing into religion this idea that we can bargain with the world and act good now and then get a payoff later. That's religion. That religion, particularly Christianity, solved a bunch of problems, gave us new problems that we could now focus on. That gave us science, but then what did science give us? And this is where he says science gave us totalitarianism. And then towards the end of this chapter, right, because he obviously he wants to fight totalitarianism, so he says, okay, what, what is the starting point? Where can you actually start and come up with an idea of meaning, of value, of um, – a perspective on being as a human being that is good, is acceptable, is, is motivating. And 
on he, he talks about his own origin. What is his own starting point? You know, he talks about Descartes' starting point. What was Descartes' irrefutable starting point? Descartes' irrefutable starting point in life was, I think, therefore I am. And he reveals his own starting point. And he discusses it, I believe, starting page 196 to 201. Yeah, he says in 1984, he was plagued with doubt. And he was trying to figure out, you know, what's his starting point? What can he not doubt? And he says the thing that he is not able to doubt is the reality of suffering. Page 197, he says, suffering is real, and the artful infliction of suffering on another for its own sake is wrong. This is what we can have as our starting points. So your starting point is you can't deny suffering. That's real. And the thing that's wrong is infliction, artful infliction, particularly of suffering on another for its own sake. Wrong. Um, and, he, and he said also, when he looked into himself, and this is quoting him on 197, as I said, he reveals so much of himself in this book. He says, searching through the lowest reaches of human thought and action, understanding my own capacity to act like a Nazi prison guard or gulag archipelago trustee or torturer of children in a dungeon, I grasped what it meant to, quote, take the sins of the world onto oneself. He says, each human being has an immense capacity for evil. Each human being understands a priori, perhaps not what is good, but certainly what is not. So he starts with a negation. He says, suffering is bad. Doing something that causes suffering is wrong, bad. And what you want to do then is do good. What is the good? He defines the good as whatever stops suffering from happening, whatever stops such things happening. So now when you get to chapter seven, it all makes sense, right? Because he says, remember at the beginning in the first installment I did of this, I was wondering why is it that he is putting these posters, Nazi or not Nazi, a Soviet propaganda in his home. The, the introduction by Norman Deutsch refers to that. It's like how dark, you know, for me, when I want something motivating that's going to impel me to do good. I like to, you know, put in my surroundings things that are of tremendous value to me. You can't see it, but I've got a reproduction of my favorite sculpture in, in this office and, and pictures of people I value and stuff like that. So that's what I want to surround myself. Why does he do this? If you think that the inevitable, or, you know, the, the irreducible starting point that you have to start with is suffering and that the good is to do anything that there is to prevent that. And in particular, he talks about that he believes within his own nature is a potential propensity to either maybe do some bad himself, although I don't think he's so scared of that, but he's worried about maybe not doing all that he can to not cause any further suffering, not bring any suffering about, you know, so to speak. He wants to do everything that he can to, to stop the suffering. It, it makes more sense. You know, he, he thinks that it is, um, you know, people's kind of anti-human sentiment that brought about tyranny, and that's going to come up in a, in a later chapter. Anyway, again, I, a huge light bulb went off for me when I read this, because if, if, if he thinks this is the, the starting point and that the good is whatever stops suffering from happening, then as a motivator, you would want to have reminders of the, the suffering around you that it might keep you motivated 
in your life. Um, the question I would have for him is, is why have suffering as the starting point? Maybe you could say historically for some people that might be the thing that they remember being irrefutable in their lives. But if you come back later and you're able to reflect on, you know, what would be a starting point for ethics? What would be a starting point for determining what is good versus what is evil? Rand had a very different starting point. Rand said, let's look at this very core concept that's at the root of ethics, this concept of value. What is a value? What, what is a value? Why do human beings need value? Why do we need a code of ethics in the first place to tell us? what is good or what is bad. And that was her starting point. Her starting point was, you know, why do you need a code of ethics? What, you know, what is a code of ethics? It it talks about what values are. And then, you know, what is the meaning of this concept of value? What gives rise to the need for values for human beings? Why not choose that as a starting point instead? Um, Another way to think about it is, how can you start with a negation? You'd say, okay, well, this is not good. It, it, it's bad. Well, why, why do you start with a negation? The good is whatever stops bad from happening. No, what, what is good? What is good for human beings? Why is it good for human beings? Rand you know, hinges that in the fundamental nature of life, that life is limited, that life requires self-sustaining action. Life requires the attainment of values and how we as human beings attain values is what gives rise to the need for ethics. It's the, you know, again, he's right. Later in the book, he talks about the fundamental alternative of life and death. Um, He talks about in a really fun way, but um, that fundamental alternative and, you know, why not start there and why not say the good is whatever can keep us, in the realm of being and keep us there in a way that is meaningful, um, that is enjoyable, that makes use of our distinctive human natures. Um, okay. So that, that's his starting point that he does in chapter seven is probably a good place to reveal that it's almost like the climax of the, the book. Um, okay. Let me see if there's, Oh yeah, so so in in terms of talking about meaning, um, you know, he says, verse, you know, choose what's meaningful, not what is expedient, and he contrasts what is expedient, following blind impulse, short-term gain, etc. Uh, but the motivation for him is you're always looking at what is, you know, let's alleviate unnecessary pain and suffering. And I would say yes, his concept of meaning is good, but the motivation isn't alleviation of unnecessary pain and suffering it's the pursuit of an enjoyable fulfilling life here on earth Um, yes there is suffering in the world and you do want to alleviate unnecessary pain and suffering but should that be the focus should the focus be the negative or the positive he and i make different choices about that Um, He says, and this is on page 199, and I ask him the question, why not start here? He says, if the value structure, your value structure is aimed at the betterment of being, the meaning revealed will be life-sustaining. 
It will provide the antidote for chaos and suffering. It will make everything matter. It will make everything better. Meaning emerges, skipping up a little, he says, when impulses are regulated, organized, and unified. Meaning emerges from the interplay between the possibilities of the world and the value structure operating within that world. Um, Just to give you an idea of his negative focus on this, when you know when you're going to make the world a better place, he says, when you put that at the top of your value hierarchy, you experience ever deepen ever deepening meaning. He says it's not bliss, it's not happiness, it's something more like atonement for the criminal fact of your fractured and damaged being. It's payment of the debt you owe for the insane and horrible miracle of your existence. So if I'm translating that into objectivist terms, for I reject the negative cast on this, right? So what I would say is that if you're going to remain in reality here, living, being, yes, as a human being, you need to produce values in this world. You need to engage in life-sustaining behavior as the kind of being that you are, as a human being. Uh, It's not a debt. It's a decision. It's a decision that you make all the time. You decide, okay, am I going to do things to further my life as a human being here on earth or not? Um, It's a payment, right? You are paying in a certain way. The reality demands that you engage in productive behavior in order to sustain your life and, and to enjoy your life. But it's not a debt and it's not you know, there, there's not an insane and horrible miracle of your existence. You might value the fact, yes, you might say, I wouldn't call it a miracle in the technical sense, but you could say, you know, yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful thing. It's, it's great that you're here on earth. And in order to continue that, you have to engage in certain life-sustaining processes as a human being, as the kind of thing that you are. You can't choose to act like a plant and just plant yourself like a tree and hope that everything that you need comes to you. You have to work. Um, but it's not a debt, and and it's not an insane and horrible miracle. Sometimes it might seem that way. I grant you, especially with what he's gone through in his life. But it's difference in focus. I I see myself as pessimistic in contrast to your own book, and one of the reasons I'm glad that we're doing the show and one of the things that I think it will provide is this contrast between me where I see myself as the struggling optimist. And, and, you know, I told you earlier about the alcohol stuff. Um, Struggling optimist is because I had just, just this crappy, really bad childhood. Um, But nonetheless, I've never had, I think what Peterson, you know, keeps talking about throughout here, which is it, it has never seemed reasonable to me to criticize being as such or all human beings. I've always had hope for human nature. And maybe it's because I saw in myself for myself. I don't, I don't know why, you know, why is it that to him, he leans a lot more towards the pessimism when he's been through horrible tragedies versus me. Now you could say, well, the tragedies that he's been through are different. He had a horribly, horribly sick child. Um, And you could see how that would really affect you. But the other thing is, he believes in God. He's apparently always believed in God. And that could be part of it, that if you believe that there is a God who could have done something about this and didn't, whatever the suffering is that you've 
encountered that's permitted these horrible things to happen, that might set you against being in a way that somebody who's me, where I'm just an atheist, I wouldn't be. You know, who do I blame? I blame the individual human beings who did the bad things. I understand that hurricanes happen and everything else. My emotions at a particular moment in time might not go along with that. And I always understand that, but it's, it's just, it's just a very different perspective, but with Yaron, who is um, very efficacious optimist, I think it's going to be a really good, a, a good show, a good contrast. Um, so as I said, he's got this different starting point. He nonetheless guides you towards, I think a very nice, loss of of meaning what it is to achieve meaning what is to have a meaningful experience in your life when you hear him describe meaning on video it it does appeal to you in a visceral way but it's not because you're paying a debt or atoning for your existence etc i haven't taken a sip of anything all this time and i've been talking for an hour and 24 minutes or something sorry guys okay rule eight Tell the truth or at least don't lie. And here's another revelation in this discussion, a revelation of, of his self before he was going into his clinical studies as a psychologist. On page 205, I better read from him. Don't take him out of context. As I said, this guy just tells you everything about himself. Uh, he, he was talking about deciding what to tell an inpatient at a mental hospital when the inpatient asked if he could join the group of interns that were walking around. And he decided to tell the guy basically the truth. Um, He said, uh, we can only take eight people in our group. Oh, wait, no, no, that was, that would have been the lie. What did he say? Um, The thing that he ended up saying was what he told something that was true. It was, you know, basically that we're this group and so he can't join us or something. Anyway, in in the course of telling this story, he reveals himself. He says he had a strange set of experiences a few years before embarking on, I'm quoting from him, my clinical training. He says, I found myself subject to some rather violent compulsions, none acted upon, and developed the conviction in consequence that I really knew rather little about who I was and what I was up to. So I began paying much closer attention to what I was doing and saying. The experience was disconcerting to say the least. I soon divided myself into two parts, one that spoke and one more detached that paid attention and judged. I soon came to realize that almost everything I said was untrue. He says, I had motives for saying these things, wanted to win arguments and gain status and impress people and get what I wanted, continues. But anyway, he gives you this revelation about himself and when you read this, it makes more sense. Again, the question I had at the beginning, why is he keeping the Soviet propaganda on the wall? He is telling himself, look, I need to behave the way that I believe is necessary to alleviate unnecessary suffering in the world and um, make sure that we're going to stave off tyranny in, in particular as that suffering. He gives other stories in this chapter of what are the consequences of telling the truth versus lie. He had a paranoid slash dangerous client and he was just truthfully just kept telling the client what his reaction was to what the guy was saying and made a lot of progress. He had an intimidating landlord and he just told the guy 
point blank, you know, what his reactions were to the intimidations and ended up coming out of that experience quite well, too. Uh, when you're using words, he says, to manipulate, you are telling what's called life lies. And he gives a description of those uh, on 209, but I'm not going to be able to continue to go through and quote him verbatim or I'm never going to get through the rest of the rules. Um, what does he suggest that you do? Oh, wait, no, no, no. Okay. Uh, before we get to that, he talks about if you have a naively formulated goal, if you're not being honest with yourself then that is going to get you in trouble. And he throws around the world words rationality and ideologues. When he's using the word rationality in this chapter, I take him to mean what objectivists would call rationalization. Um, you could also, yeah, I mean, really, really it's, it's uh, rationalization that he has in mind, this idea of telling some sort of seemingly coherent story that isn't really in line with the truth. Um, he also talks about the fact that if you avoid telling the truth, that it's just as bad as if you are telling a lie. If you're hiding, someone is hi- someone who is hiding is also not a vital person. So um, another great thing that I got out of this chapter he talks about the necessity to try new things in your life. And this is on page 212. He says that there's structures in our brain that if we try new things, they will actually like turn on and develop, that you will actually develop new parts of yourself, of your psyche when you develop something new, uh, when you try something new, and that you'll learn more things about yourself. You'll turn on different parts of your brain by having new experiences, and you can't do this otherwise. Um, So he contrasts this thing, this life lie, the thing that you tell yourself when you're just trying to manipulate and avoid the truth about yourself versus having a real vision. And he describes what that is on page 213. I better get there because we're getting to his practical advice. Um, Oh, 212, great quote. He says, if you betray yourself, if you say untrue things, if you act out a lie, you weaken your character. And many of you have heard him talk about telling the truth and, and the importance of it. Uh, but having a vision, right, um, imagining a, a good future for yourself is not the same as telling a life lie. He says a vision of the future, a desirable future, is necessary. Um, but then if you go about trying to achieve your vision and you discover an error that you made, then what do you have to do? At the bottom of 213, he says, error necessitates sacrifice to correct it. And serious error necessitates serious sacrifice. He says, to accept the truth means to sacrifice. Here again, I think he's using the term sacrifice in terms of trade-off. He's not using it in the way that I would use it. You're not giving up a higher value if you are correcting an error. If you're doing whatever you have to do in order to make up for your stupid mistake, It's not a sacrifice. It's something that has to be done. You have a self-dialogue he describes on 214. You ask yourself, did uh, did what I want happen? No. Then my aim or my methods were wrong. I still have something to learn. He says, that's the voice of authenticity. 
Instead, he says, some people say, did what I want happen? No, then the world is unfair. That's inauthenticity. He says, when an individual lies, he knows it, you know, that you have this feeling. And one of the types of things he talks about as, as a lie is something that I've experienced. If I'm trying to present something either on a show here or in a lecture, and I know that I don't completely, to the best of my ability at this moment, understand the thing that it is that I'm explaining, it bugs me. And you have that decision at that moment. Do you try to go back and figure it out? Do you even know? What do you say? And I, I just can never get to this idea of, oh, I'm going to give you, you know, the kind of the glossed over thing that I don't fully understand. Um, I have to stop myself and, and go over. And sometimes that's why it takes me so long to get through material, right? Um, it takes me a long time to, to read and digest as well. Um, Okay, so if you have sort of this failure to speak up, what happens? It talks about what might happen to you in the workplace if you don't speak up. Uh, Solzhenitsyn in the Gulag Archipelago talks about what happens when people do not speak up against a tyranny. He says you prop up the dictates of the rational, that's the way he uses rational, rational ideology-possessed communist system. Frankel also talks about what it is that um, you get when you are deceitful. In Man's Search for Meaning, he says, deceitful, inauthentic individual existence is the precursor to social totalitarianism. Lies, writes Peterson, warp the structure of being. Um, and then this is when he talks about that mere existential misery can be turned into, quote, outright hell by betrayal and deceit. In families, he's witnessed this. Uh, any natural weakness on 216, he says, any natural weakness or existential challenge, no matter how minor, can be magnified into a serious crisis with enough deceit in the individual, family, or culture. Now, at the bottom, it's interesting because he talks about, um, yes, you know, the honest human spirit may continually fail, etc. We have limitations and vulnerability. And then he says, it may even be the price we pay for being itself since existence must be limited to be at all. So you see how he recognizes that, that existence is limited, but he takes a pessimistic view of that, whereas objectivists just got everything in line, right? Our emotions are coming along with us. We're saying, okay, existence just is, and you know, that's the starting point. And you say, okay, well, let's make the most of it while we're here and let's focus. Let's use our reason to focus on the positive. Um, now, rationality, he ends up saying something positive about it on 217. The process rationality, he says, can produce clarity and progress. It is because rationality is subject to the single worst temptation to raise what it knows, oh, to be is an absolute. Okay, so... On the one hand, he talks about rationality it can um, produce clarity and progress. But then on the other hand, he says that rationality can lead to rationalism is what we would call it as objectivists. Rationalism would be the – and Leonard Peikoff talked a lot about rationalism, how he had it in himself. He had to cure himself of it. Taking an idea completely out of context and applying it as – an out-of-context absolute in various 
circumstances and reaching all sorts of ridiculous conclusions, that would be rationalism. That would not be rationality. And I think that um, if I was to have the discussion with Peterson, if he ever would talk to me that maybe we could talk about the difference between rationalism on the one hand and a proper process, a proper virtue of rationality, which would consist of being open to errors, knowing that you still have things to learn and, and perfect in yourself. Um, but, you know, he goes on on page 218 to talk about, you know, what is the spirit of reason, reason falling in love with itself. There I think he's talking about rationalism, not about reason. Okay, let me get back to my notes because I'm getting mired and my notes are more essentialized than my markups in the book. Okay, so he says, you know, yeah, you've got the existential challenge. You're going to go to hell with deceit. Um, Lucifer, spirit of reason. By reason, he seems to understand rationalism. Like I said, a closed-minded person. I you know, talked about that whole thing with Tucker, our atheist closed-minded, what it would be to be open-minded properly. 218 to 219, I think he displays a misunderstanding of what proper reason and rationality would be. Proper rationality would be being open to this. Refusal to change in the face of error is not reason or rationality. Page 220, he talks about what happens if you lie. If you lie, basically you live in hell. Um, and, you know, Yaron did an excellent show on honesty, the virtue of honesty recently. And I would recommend that to anybody who wants to go more into an idea of a selfish perspective on honesty, a completely selfish perspective on honesty. But they have an, a tremendous overlap, both Peterson and Yaron. I mean, Peterson is just excellent at dramatizing what it's like to live in hell because of lies that you tell. Uh, what can you do? You can tell the truth instead. And on 221, he starts describing what that is. He gives you the advice of developing an aim for your life without, quote, totalitarian certainty. Um, how, where do you start? And this is where he gives you advice. He says, as a starting point, rely on tradition, rely on the cultural values. He says it's reasonable to do that unless you, quote, have a good reason not to. So maybe you pick a starting point based on what tradition, what cultural values give you. You keep your eyes open and you see what happens. Um, he has a little bit of a foray into the Egyptian god Horus, who's the god of attention, and he contrasts attention versus rationality. Again, here I would translate rationality properly understood. And my understanding of rationality would encompass what Peterson talks about by attention, paying attention, being open to evidence out there. He has the, whole, the moral of the story of Horus and Osiris on page 222. Uh, you can restore vision through proper attention really is the, the the message there. Page 223, reading from Peterson, he says, you should never sacrifice what you could be for what you are. You should never give up the better that resides within for the security you already have. And certainly not when you have already caught a glimpse, an undeniable glimpse of 
something beyond. So you've, you've got to pay attention. You have got to learn whatever is before your eyes. Even if it's horrible, you have to be willing to say that you're, you've made an error to change your aim. But when you get a glimpse of a, a better life, you need to, to keep aiming at it. So you set an aim. He says you start with your aim by accepting cultural tradition. I guess if you actually have no other aim in yourself, but I would say anybody who's asking themselves this question and starting to you know, have an aim in their lives for themselves, they don't necessarily need to rely on cultural tradition. But set an aim, a reasonable aim for yourself, and watch what happens. Pay attention, keep your eyes open, be honest with yourself for errors, and be willing to correct them. So set your ambitions, pay attention. Don't retain an out-of-context commitment to any, you know, to, to any sort of a goal. Um, tell the truth. You'll transform as you progress. To me, the Katy Perry firework song came to mind as I was reading that part. Oh, and then he says, okay, you, yeah, make, make some sort of a leap of faith at a certain point. If existence is good, you're going to make an act of faith and you're going to act accordingly. Um, Live in the truth. And to me, I would not say that honesty is any sort of faith. Um, Living in the truth is the thing that's necessary for us to use our rational faculty and stay in reality. I'm starting to get worried because of time and I'm not doing what I want to do here. Let me... um, Yeah, okay. Let Let me give you a little bit of what he depicts about the effect of a lie on us, on our, on our life. Um, things will fall apart without, he says, if we have attention, we can open our eyes and modify what, what we have where necessary and keep the machinery running smooth, smoothly. Without attention, he says, culture degen- degenerates, dies, and evil prevails. Um, what you see of a lie when you act it out, and most lies are acted out rather than told, is very little of what it actually is. He says a lie is connected to everything else. It produces the same effect on the world that a single drop of sewage produces in even the largest crystal magnum of champagne. He says it is something best considered live and growing. I would say that this is a beautiful way to describe it, but when he's describing it, he's talking about the effect of lie, not just on an individual human consciousness, but on a culture. And you would describe it in objectivist terms instead about the lies effect on an individual, on our ability to remain in contact with reality. You know, we've talked earlier about consciousness is limited. There's certain things about the nature of consciousness that we have to work within in order to get at the truth. And why would you cripple yourself by telling yourself a lie by um, shielding yourself from the, the true nature of reality. It would just make that whole enterprise harder. Um, and he does think at the end of the day that if you are telling all these lies, you put yourself at war with reality. And, he, and he, on 229, he says, finally, what's the result? He says, there's the proposition, quote, 
being itself is susceptible to my manipulation, thus it deserves no respect. So he's talking about the person who's maybe had some success at lying and fooling other people and getting away with it in a certain way, that that person is going to develop contempt for reality and being and everything else, and it's going to lead them down this horrible path, potentially a violent path. So what do we do uh, as human beings? We transform chaos into being, he says, through speech. In other parts of the book, he's talked about God creates the world through speech. And he's, human beings, what do we do? We think by speaking either to others or ourselves. We envision some sort of way that we can make the world. We act in order to bring that about. That's what he means by, as human beings, we transform chaos into being through speech. Um, you have to tell your truth. You have to be honest in order to be vital. You know, one of the things we talked about before was you're hidden. You're not a vital person if you lie, if you don't reveal yourself. Um, so, yeah, I, I highly recommend that chapter. He does a great job describing how lies require more lies, uh, beautiful images about the consequences of lying. Rule nine, assume the person you are listening to might know something you don't. I'm probably going to have to get questions and stuff on this another time. This uh, Redmond in the MTB in the chat room says, I like the champagne sewage metaphor. Uh, isn't that what happens in Atlas Shrugged? Yeah, definitely. I, I mean, he understands implicitly what happens to a human consciousness when you allow that lie, something that you know is a lie, into your consciousness. The, the champagne sewage is just beautiful. It's like the tiniest bit of sewage in champagne. So implicitly, I think he's got a respect for rationality and, and human reason. It's not just about the culture. It's about the functioning of human consciousness that keeps us here in the realm of being. Okay, yeah, so assume the person you're listening to might know something you don't. He talks about how to be a good listener and the value of being a good listener. And he talks about, as I said at the very beginning of this very long show where I'm just talking and talking and talking, how you know, talking is the way in which people think. And of course, it's better to have a conversation. It'd be better if I could see all of your reactions on your faces while you're listening to me. Um, if I could do more than just read the comments here. I've got somebody who's been, you know, called and hung on the whole time, but I've never said I'm ready to take callers. You poor people. I'm so sorry. I'm talking a lot, but yeah, it's how people think. And he talks to you about different ways of being a good listener in particular, the, uh, method that Roger uh, Rogers recommends, which did sound appealing to me. Um, different types of conversations that are real conversations, how lecturing is a real conversation. Um, one thing that got me in this chapter that as, as a negative, he talks about when something is new and radical. He says, something new and radical is still almost always wrong. Um, th this predilection to accept what is comes down through culture and tradition that he has there, that could be one of the reasons that he dismisses Rand. Rand is new and very radical. So maybe there's a reason to think, okay, well, it's, it's wrong. Or if it's not wrong, there's nothing that 
original about it because he has this tremendous respect and kind of presumption that what comes down through culture and tradition is, is right. Um, on the other hand, on 243, he says, Freud is a genius. We know this why, because people hate him. So that's interesting. Um, okay. How you should listen, yeah. So pages 246 to 247 describe the Rogerian method, which I'm not going to have time to go into, but it sounded very good. Uh, one point I loved. He says, if a conversation is boring, you're probably not listening. You're, you, if you're listening properly to a conversation and you're actually interested in learning what you're going to hear from the other person, you're not going to be bored. Examples of not listening, he gives. Uh, and then he gives you a, a kind of a description of the listening type of conversation from 249 to 50, how people organize their brains with conversation, how we outsource our sanity because of interacting with other people, and what it means to have a genuine conversation, um, how, what, how it is to treat somebody else in the conversation, how a lecture is a conversation. And then he also talks, and he talks about this a little later in the book too, um, demonstration of wit, the kind of banter that people can have, competitive humor as he calls it back and forth. I do that with friends about pineapple pizza all the time. I, I saw that. It's such a fun interaction to have with other people. So he talks about in here, like I said, the different types of conversation that you have. Um, you want to respect experience of the people with whom you are speaking. You want to really listen to them in a way that shows that they are valued uh, as well. Um, Mutual exploration, that type of conversation he describes, and it's also a wonderful one. The mutual exploration sort of conversation, the one where both are on the premise that they have something to learn from the other, and they're willing to you know, say that some understanding that they've had about something is wrong, that would be the ideal uh, type of conversation to have for Peterson. Uh, what, what do I take out of this? You know, again, I'm, I'm, here's this person who I don't agree with completely, but I'm getting a tremendous amount out of the fact that I'm willing to listen and get something out of this book doesn't mean that I don't have any set beliefs myself, that I don't have any firm convictions or anything that I would call knowledge. There's, you know, a, a willingness to have a conversation with somebody that you value who think has something good to offer and listen to that and maybe augment your justification for your own view or maybe change some of your ideas know that that's always a possibility rationality would require that it doesn't you know require saying oh i have no firm beliefs or i'm agnostic or any or anything else rule 10 be precise in your speech and this was not exactly what i expected because what it ended up being more was speaking up for yourself and talking uh about problems in relationships. You know, he ends up talking about things that he said before, dreadful inadequacy of our own senses, et cetera, that things that we see out there are just part of a, a bigger whole that we don't completely understand. But then he goes into the practical advice and he talks about within relationships, within households, chaos, 
emerges bit by bit. And he has this running example of a woman who, after a long period of time, discovers that her husband had cheated on her. But then if she went back and thought about it, she realized that she had brought something to the table as well and that she had failed to have important conversations and stand up for herself at particular points throughout the relationship. Uh, Maybe the fog that people live in is purposeful, and he describes on page 275 why people try to avoid having these difficult conversations. There might be a monster there. People don't want to face it. And he says that not thinking about something that you don't want to know about doesn't make it go away, that you need to have these difficult conversations. Now, how do you escape this? You needed the care and courage for yourself earlier, but the advice really is that wherever you are, suppose you found that you've gotten to a place like this woman, who, you know, she discovered her husband cheated on her. She needs to, if she can, if she's not so destroyed that she can't go through this process, he says, she needs to go through and just take an inventory. What did I bring to this? How is it that I can make myself a better person in the future? Um, You engage, he talks about, uh, in a construction of your soul and the world through precise speech. Now, he would say, you know, your world, the world that you're making for yourself in that sense. Not that you literally construct the world, but what do you do? You admit to certain problems. If you are unhappy, again, consent, you know, consult your resentment. Are you reasonably unhappy? Is it something that you need to stand up for yourself about and speak to somebody about? Or are you just a whining, spoiled brat kind of person and, and need to just get over it and go on with your life? If you ignore your problems, there's just going to be continued malfunction and problems. He he tells a story about a, a dragon, a child story about a dragon in there, and it's you know the, there's a monster, there's a dragon. Don't feed it. You know, tell the truth, stand up for yourself. Uh, now the last two rules, eleven rules, twelve. I listened to on audiobook, and it was actually quite good. On the the rule twelve, I was listening while I was walking. Uh, Do not bother children when they are skateboarding. If you bother children when they are skateboarding, you are displaying a very anti-human impulse or sentiment that you have within you. And in this chapter, he talks about other ways that people are anti-human. One way would be to be a believer in a tyrannical Uh, philosophy like Marxism, communism, you know, how could anybody after watching the 20th century, you know, be someone who believes in Marxism and and communism and not hate people. And then he also has a a very interesting section in here about um, if you hate men, you know, if you're like anti-man, then you are anti-human being. So he asked you in effect to question you know, you might think you're doing something good when you stop a kid when they're skateboarding because you think you're going to save them from, um, you know, some you know, hurting themselves or whatever it is. And he says, no, in effect, you are engaging in something that's very, very anti-human. The experience that the skateboarders are giving to themselves when they're pushing their limits and stretching their abilities when, you know, out there maneuvering and doing all these dangerous things. I keep thinking of... Um, Danny McCaskill, if you've ever watched 
Danny McCaskill's A Long Way Home, which is the way that many people learned about the Jezebels, by the way. There's the Jezebel song, A Little Piece, behind that video. When he is doing those tremendously brave things on that bike, it reminds me of these skateboarders. Um, when they're skateboarding, they are developing their human capacity. And if you are stopping them from doing that, you are anti-human. And like I said, the, the rest of the chapter talks about different ways that people are anti-human in today's culture and basically says, don't do that. Um, it, it's a really nice chapter. I really do recommend this book because there's just so much, so much value there, so many integrations that he makes that you wouldn't expect between skateboarding, people stopping people skateboarding and people being anti-male in our culture today drawing the parallels between those two. It's, it's masterful. Uh, chapter 12. Yeah, Danny McCaskill is so wonderful. Uh, in the chat room blog talk, someone mentioned it. Okay, I only got a few minutes. Uh, so chapter 12, uh, rule 12, excuse me, is heart-wrenching. The title of the rule is Pet a Cat When You Encounter One on the Street. And the reason you should pet a cat when you encounter one on the street is that you can have this interaction with a unique type of being, the cat, and he describes the nature of the cat and why that particular interaction should be of value to you as a human being. But this will, and actually let me, let me get to that last part of it because he describes what it is that you will get from that experience. Uh, this is on 353. He says, maybe when you're going for a walk and your head is spinning, a cat will show up, and if you pay attention to it, then you will get a reminder for just 15 seconds that the wonder of being might make up for the ineradicable, excuse me, ineradicable suffering that accompanies it. So what is it, you know, why are you petting a cat? Because being is suffering, right? The nature of being is suffering. In this chapter, in the most heart-wrenching way, he tells you of the experience that he's had with his daughter and her illness um, and how much she suffered and how much he suffered. And you are brought to tears when you read this. As I said, you know, you, you start to put the pieces together when he reveals more and more of himself. Um, you see why he thinks it's plausible to curse being as such and, and think it's terrible. He believes in a God or some sort of a fate or thing. And in addition, he has gone through so much suffering and he's witnessed some impulses that he doesn't like within himself. You see why he finds it imperative to keep the reminders of the tyranny that he's fighting on his wall. And at the same time, you can see why And um, people at blog talk, you're going to be cut off. You're going to have to go over to Facebook because I'm going to keep talking for a little bit longer. Um, hopefully the I don't know if the recording actually is going to continue, but I'm going to go ahead and continue on Facebook, finishing what I have to say here. Um, you can you can see why uh, he is who he is and what he's had to overcome in his life, and it's understandable his approach. Why why he'll take such a pessimistic view? I'm still after this taking the more optimistic view. I mean, what do you think I do when I go out and I'm taking pictures of flowers all the time and then putting them up? If I have challenges in my life, focusing on that is the thing that brings to you know the wonder of being to me but it's not that I think life is so, you know so much suffering I don't focus on that myself all the time 
but you can still take his advice. You can pet the cat. You can take the picture of the flowers without accepting his conclusions uh, about life and being as such. So for the blog talk people, if you're going to see what I'm going to say in the last part of this, I'm going to go ahead and look at his afterward in a minute. Um, You'll have to continue on YouTube. You'll have to check out my YouTube channel. I'm so so sorry that you have to check out my YouTube channel to hear the rest. Uh, Everybody else, hang on. Blog talk people, goodbye. I'm going to go ahead and end my episode over there because they said I've got no recording left anyway.